So, John, it's it's quarter to five in the morning, and we're standing at Lillian Lynn's Light Pyramid in Milton Keynes, <laughs> while the rest of the people who are celebrating sunrise on this glorious day are going to be at Stonehenge. So, why the hell are we in Milton Keynes? Well, for a start, we're doing exactly the same. You know, we're looking over the horizon and looking at the point that the, the sun rises on the longest day, the most which I think is most subtly point on the on the horizon where the sun rises. Um, we're just doing what they're doing, which is just what people have been doing for thousands of years. Um, it's just Stonehenge is known for it. That's all it's known for. The fact that Milton Keynes was, was built in the 1960s uh, under a fog of marijuana smoke and Pink Floyd records and orientated to be a sun temple. Uh, because, because of Watling Street um, being tilted the way it is. The whole of, you know, Watling Street was here first. The lovely grid structure of the Milton Keen roads had to be fitted in with Watling Street, which meant that they don't run north, south, east, west. It means they're canted uh, at an angle, uh, pointing northeast, which means, someone realised, that they could align the entire uh, town to the rising sun on the longest day. Having journeyed through Canterbury and London in our two previous episodes, John and I make our slow ascent up the spine of England as Watling Street meanders through the home counties to the Midlands. After taking in the midsummer sunrise at Milton Keynes, we head to Bletchley Park to discuss issues of class and code-breaking and to celebrate one man absent from the recent spate of books and films, Tommy Flowers. Our final destination is Northampton, the epicentre of England, to meet its most celebrated resident, Alan Moore. Author, performer and wizard, Alan grew up in a working-class district of Northampton. As well as discussing how place and class shape his work, he reveals his surprising role in the building of Milton Keynes. Episode 3, In Search of the Omphalos. So it's 4.23 in the morning, which is a time, which is a time that actually exists. And we're driving through about 4,000 roundabouts to catch the rising sun on midsummer day. I guess that's a normal thing to do. That's what people on this island have done. That's what that's thousands of years since people built Stonehenge. Uh, we pay attention to the, the longest day in the summer. But rarely did they come to Milton Keynes. I don't really think Milton Keynes is in uh, the forefront of most people's minds when they, uh, they're looking for a midsummer uh, sun temple. Um, but that's what it was built for. That's what it was designed for. So we are honouring the original wishes of the architects of Milton Keynes roundabout sculpture yeah never a good thing 
we've parked in a in a car park. John's actually going to pay for the parking at 4:32 in the morning, which I think is money not well spent. <laughs> So we just walked under a concrete bridge through a circular sculpture with a giant, what looks like an acorn in the middle and different posts. And now we're heading down a long concrete path to a pyramid. And it does, it does kind of feel like we're in some retro sci-fi film. What do you know about the, about the pyramid then, John? It's quite recent, actually. There was a beacon there. Uh, it was just destroyed by lightning shortly afterwards they put, after they put a shopping centre over the, the alignment down, down in Midsummer Boulevard. 50 years ago, uh, they'd be out... This would all be fields. And they would be out checking this alignment with ropes and sticks to, to check that this road was directly in line with the sunrise, and they realised, as they as they uh, laid out the road, uh, that it was this uh, oak tree that was 100 years old then, 150 now, mm-hmm. right in the middle. And so they didn't say, well, that'll have to go. They just went, no problem, we'll just rearrange our plans and have this sort of ancient English oak at the very heart of this city that is a sun temple. But that was in the uh, rather more utopian thinking of the... Of the, late ni- of the late 1960s. By the time um, the city was opened, as it were, by the time, in fact, it was Margaret Thatcher came to open uh, at what was the original shopping centre in the middle. Uh, the, the idea that Milton Keynes was a sort of a, a state-developed um, plan to house a quarter of a million people from the post-war baby boom, that seemed to be all forgotten and Milton Keynes was seen in, the, in terms of, of the 80s as, as being about um, commerce and, uh, and, and the future and, um, and shops, lots of shops. And so when Margaret Thatcher opened the shopping centre, she was praising the, uh, the spirit of the private sector, despite the fact that the entire town only exists because the, it was planned and, and coordinated by a, by a central state. road directly ahead is Midsummer Boulevard and this is directly 
uh, in line with that rising sun on Midsummer Day, hence the name. And either side of Midsummer Boulevard are, I think, Avery Boulevard and Silvery Boulevard. And these are names that go back to... uh, well, our, our pre-Celtic past, really, our really ancient Neolithic yeah, past. De- deliberate, deliberate nod and a reference. Very, very much so. As I understand it, uh, there was a, um, a book by uh, John Michel of The View Over Atlantis, which was a huge deal in the 1960s. It was, was about, you know, earth mysteries and uh, stone circles and, uh, you know, artificial mounds like Silbury Hill and ley lines and, and things like that. Was, and this was a big thing to the, uh, you know, the, the counterculture in the 60s, mm. this sort of connection to a, uh, an ancient past that's kind of been lost. By some reckoning, this is the beginning of summer, rather than the middle of it. Um, you can define these things how you like. Yeah. Um, but it is a special day. So do you think the people of Milton Keynes... No. Is it generally known here that this is in alignment with the sun? It's or good, do you think it's overlooked? It's a good question. Um, it's a good question. When you consider how few people turn up for it, you wonder if it's slightly occult knowledge, you know, it's slightly hidden and secret knowledge. I mean, once you, once you, once you know about the alignment... Um, it becomes quite prominent in the way you think about Milton Keynes. And because the roads are called things like Midsummer Boulevard and Silbury and Avery and, and things like that, and because it's got these strange pyramids pointing here and there, and because the whole layout is so sort of designed around it, it seems hard to overlook. It seems, it seems hard to forget. So is this the heart of Milton Keynes, then, this road? Very much so, yeah. This is very much the, the heart of Milton Keynes. And, of course, this means we're exactly six months from Christmas. Mm. Christmas uh, is, the, is the celebration, which is three days away from the winter solstice, which is exactly the opposite side of the year, in the wheel of the year. So Christmas Day would have been celebrated in terms of the return of the sun. Absolutely, absolutely. Because a solstice means uh, standstill, the sun stands still. And at this time of year, the, the both solstice, the winter and the summer solstice, the sun seems to rise at the exact same point for three days. Normally it rises at a slightly different uh, point on the horizon every day. When it gets to the, the extremes of these, it seems to stop and stand still and rise in the same place for three days. So um, Christmas is celebrated three days after the winter solstice because when the sun has visibly started moving again. It's when uh, the sun has returned. Hello, we, we're here for the sunrise. And do you know much about the pyramid and Sunset well, Boulevard? I know it was uh, it was based on the uh, uh, on the the, the sun rising uh, for the solstice. It's uh, I've been asked by the Parks Trust to sort of come up and get some images. Uh, right. Some, oh, yes. So I've, I've literally taken from the railway station 
right the way up. Oh, wonderful. And, uh, you, got, and you got the sun as well? I did, yes. What luck. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I came up yesterday morning for a trial run. Yeah. Uh, but a bit hazy. Uh, so I thought I'd better come up here on the real, real day. Right, right. So longest day of the year. And, uh, Do you know, is, it, is it well known in Milton Keynes about the sunrise alignment? Do you know, I've been in Milton Keynes since 1975 and... Uh, I didn't know until yesterday. How strange. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Great. Nice chat with you. Thanks. Thanks. From the fence to the shoreline, the lakes and the moors, the wilder garden with no borders. So do you want to tell us where we are? Yes, well, we're at Bletchley Park, and if we move away from the lake, we walk up to uh, a Victorian country estate, a very sort of odd house in many ways. It's been sort of had bits done to it at various times and various uh, styles for various reasons. It's a bit of a weird little sort of Frankenstein building. It's got sort of a, a copper dome on the left for some reason. It's got these very stern pillars out the front. It's a, it's a bit of a hodgepodge sort of, sort of thing, but it's... It's about the only thing that we've seen today that would have been around in the 19th century. All of Milton Keynes, of course, uh, didn't exist. Uh, And this place, when it went up for sale in, I think it was 1937, um, it was just with acres and acres and acres of land. All these huts you see behind us weren't built until the 1940s. Because, of course, this place was bought by the government uh, code and cipher school because they knew a war was coming and they knew there would be a lot of code-breaking needed, and they knew they couldn't remain in London where they were because that would be uh, continuously bombed. So they wanted somewhere that nobody would pay any attention to, really. Bletchley was just sort of an out-of-the-way um, little country village but had, a, had good train links to, to Cambridge, to Oxford, to London. Um, and so they, they bought this place, and it was all very... Um, upper class to start with you know they, they had a, a chef from the ritz come in and, to, and all the food was served you know uh, silver service uh, which is not how you kind of think of uh, food in the rationing of the of the second world war um 
it was a very sort of upper class world and it was a lot of the hiring was done from oh i've got friends in the right families you know there's a sense that these are these people will be will, will, they're the right type of people you know they'll they'll be able to keep a secret mm. uh to the extent that they they almost didn't hire mathematicians like alan turing because mathematicians and engineers were sort of deemed to be the sort of the wrong sort right they they, they were looking for um uh classicists you know, professors of, uh, you know, ancient Hebrew, you know, uh, linguists, mm. um, because that, that, was, that was the most acceptable sort of face of education. Maths, engineering, they were linked to trade. They were linked to work. And so they were sort of looked down upon. And you can sort of imagine how different the world would be if they, if they refused to hire Alan Turing because they sneered at him. If we, if we walk over here, just in front of the house, there's this stone... Uh, it's the unobtrusive stone. And this is where Churchill stood. I think I'm going to stand on it myself. I'll be Churchill. Uh, when he came to address everyone here, Churchill was just, of course, enamoured of this place. It was the, uh, it was the goose that laid the golden eggs and never cackled, as he, as, as he put it. And it's that sort of image of Churchill standing on this rock, facing, you know, this, this Victorian country estate, um, has become... Uh, you know, one of our one of our sort of go-to images of, of World War Two. It's it's kind of interesting. Most of our of the stories we like to tell about that period paint as very much as the underdog. You know, it's a bit like the Dunkirk story, yeah. or, we like, or we like the Battle of Britain and, th- and things like that. It's only more recently that the story of um, Bletchley Park, of Turing, of all the code breakers um, has, has become known really in, in the late seventies. And even when I was growing up in the seventies and the eighties, the idea that you know, being smart, you know, being clever, knowing maths, being able to crack codes was in some way admirable. Right? Didn't really exist, that idea. You know, it was something to be sort of ashamed of. You'd be mocked for it, you know. But now in the 21st century, we're quite happy to sort of applaud, you know, cleverness. You know, the, the, the geeks have won, the nerds have won in some way. So, so, you're, so you're saying geek chic started, started here, did it? Well, I mean, it's pretty, you know, if, you, if you're going to affect the, the, the fate of the future of the Western world to the extent that the mathematicians who worked here did, you know, that's pretty cool, whichever way you face it, you know. Um, should we go in? Yeah. That's the sound, not... That's not Morse code. So we're inside the house now. Yeah, yes, and in one of the front rooms, um, they've got the, the bill of sale... Um, sort of framed, the 1937 bill of sale uh, framed to put on the wall and it's um, it's kind of a lovely image of the of the time really, it says uh, uh, nearly a mile of frontage to the main Birmingham road in brackets Watling Street uh, important freehold residential agriculture and building property known as the Bletchley Park Estate, extended to about 581 acres the modern mansion, pleasure grounds and parklands it sounds, it sounds very, very sort of beautiful, but the things that they stress, I think over here it sort of says things like, um, yes, this, if we look here, it says hunting. The estate is exceptionally well-placed in an important hunting district. This is the centre of the Wadden Chase, whose kennels are close by, and the Duke of Grafton's, Bychester and Oakley Hunts are all within easy reach. This is... This is the there's your priorities. Yeah, yeah. there's your priorities. Yeah. But notice up here, it's, it does say, from Bletchley Station, there's a frequent service of trains to and from London, which is sort of an average journey, and it is within a few yards of the principal shops. So things like that are returning. Mm. There are individual combats which bear ample witness to the gallantry 
and the daring of those young men who take part in them. What we're looking at here, what we're looking at here in the library of Bletchley Park, they've got a rows and rows of desks, each with a chair, each with a typewriter, each with a telephone, each with a ashtray. Mm. I, this is the, the analogue internet, sort of walking around inside the analogue internet, the pre-digital world. This is how information shuttled about. This is how information was processed. This was, it isn't really that different to what we do today. It's, it's just we hadn't had people like uh, Turing, we hadn't had people like Tommy Flowers who'd come along and invent the sort of digital uh, machines uh, that we now take for granted that we have in our pockets as tiny, tiny telephones, you know. So we're actually walking towards Hut 8, which I suspect is this one, because this is where Turing's office was. And uh, Alan Turing is, of course, the most famous of all the code breakers here, after things like the film Imitation Game with Benedict Cumberbatch and, and, um, and his role in the sort of uh, Turing's Law, the removal of um, the, the pardoning of people convicted of historic uh, homosexual offences. Uh, you know, he's a great British hero, is Turing. Um, if we go through here, I think I have his, his office exactly as it was in his day. And if you can look at the radiator, there's a tin cup chained. That was his tin cup, because they just used to nick his cup. This is, the, this is they were like children. And, you know, I've always known of Turing, because um, back in the early 90s, I did a degree in computer science. And, and Turing was a, a, a huge, huge figure in the development of computers, in the development of uh, the concepts behind artificial intelligence. Computers used to be called Turing machines. A Turing machine was a sort of mathematical uh, proof that uh, a machine capable of following any instruction was possible. It's, it's you know, only by quirk of fate that we call them computers and not Turing machines now. Now, he was a major, major figure, but this was regardless of his role. Uh, cracking, uh, you know, the uh, Enigma communications. Mm. We didn't know anything about that at all. It was, uh, it was only in the 70s and more so into the 80s that people started, uh, people who worked here started telling their stories. Ed. It's wonderful that Turing has been recognised. But there's other people who need to be recognised as well. And the more you dig into a story like this, you realise that it still has its secrets. It still has its hidden... Um, uh, surprises for us all. And that's what I really love about this story is, is, is Tommy Flowers' work. Tommy Flowers is, is not a name that's known to pretty much anyone, really. And it's a real shame because the, the, you know, the number of uh, uh, British computer pioneers that most, most people might have heard of you know, there's not many. There's, mm. you know, there's, there's Tim Berners-Lee, there's Alan Turing. You can go back to Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage, if you like. Maybe you want to throw in Sir Clive Sinclair if you're feeling generous. No one puts Tommy Flowers on that list, but Tommy designed and built the first digital programmable computer, a sort of computer as we'd recognise it now. It's not as programmable as what we'd call now, but it was still a programmable mm. digital computer. And he did it off his own back. 
he di- he he presented the plans to to people at Bletchley Park, but they looked down on Tommy because Tommy was a sort of a self-made East London guy, right? He learned engineering at night school. He was from the East End of London. He was the opposite of the you know the Oxbridge um, set that sort of worked here, and they just dismissed him. And they they uh, they said, oh, that won't work. We're not interested in that. This, these designs he had, and so he went back to he worked at the post office, and he said, well, we'll build it anyway. And he spent the uh, best part of a year, him and his team, uh, funding it out of their own money to a large extent, creating the world's first digital programmable computer because he knew Bletchley Park would need it later. And, and, and he was right. And when it was finished, it was brought here and, and it, it did solve uh, a lot of the, the what they called the tunny um, ciphers. This was a new cipher that the Germans started using, uh, which was unbreakable by the, the uh, bomb machines that Turing had, had built. Um, and this was bleeding up to D-Day, you know, so they mm. really needed to uh, interpret and, and decrypt all the, the, the sort of high-ranking Nazi communication, which were, which were uh, in this tunny cipher. So it was Tommy Flowers' uh, machine, which he just built out of stubbornness, uh, that was able to do that. That's what uh, reassured that uh, Churchill and Roosevelt that um, that uh, the D-Day landers could go ahead as planned and they hadn't, hadn't been rumbled. And Tommy, he's just forgotten. He's, he's just not known by anyone. He couldn't talk about his work here. After the war, he was just sort of sent back to the, to the post office. And, you know, he tried to then again build a new computer and, and say, look, we should, we should build computers. He was the only person in the world who could do it. And, and you know... He, he would go to, to banks to raise money for this and they'd go, that's going to be ridiculous, that can't be done. And he couldn't say that he'd already, already done it. And he had to sort of sit back and watch as uh, uh, there was a, um, uh, an American computer called ENIAC, E-N-I-A-C, that became recognised uh, in the post-war world as the first digital programmable computer and that went into all the history books. Mm-hmm. And he just had to sit back and, and listen. And he, was, uh, and he was a very much a forgotten figure, his poor, poor Tommy. But, you know, it was, was, in the post-war period, Britain was uh, a pioneering force in computers, in the development of computers, especially at Manchester University. A lot of people here from here at Bletchley Park went up to Manchester University, uh, Turing included. But someone like Tommy Flowers, with all the expertise he had, with all the sort of brilliance and, and the engineering practical sort of brilliance, mm. um, it's hard to imagine what the... What, development of computing in Britain would be like if he had been included in that, in that post-war party and not sort of, you know, excluded on the ground that he was basically a self-taught East End Cockney everyman. Now, the issue of class keeps coming up in this particular episode. It's, for me, I found the issue of class kept coming up during this, this, this stretch of Watling Street through the Midlands, through Mercer, as it used to be. You keep coming across the notion that um, there, were, there were brilliant people, brilliant, brilliant people who are just sort of excluded on the grounds that they're not the right type. You see this in, in people like Alan Moore, right, who aren't really appreciated, you know, for the, for the work they do by the sort of wider establishment, by the sort of wider media. People who read Alan Moore, you know, they know he's, you know, one of the most important British writers um, living, you know, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, you know, he's... he's um, uh, he's changed the comics industry in the way that Shigeru Miyamoto of Nintendo changed the video games industry, in the way that Lennon and McCartney changed the pop music industry. He's that important. But because he's such a working class, you know, stubborn Northamptonshire guy, 
you know, he, he, he doesn't move in the circles that would elevate him in the national sort of consciousness um, to, the, to the, the genius that he is. You get this in Stratford with... Uh, uh, where William Shakespeare was from, Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, uh, there's so much uh, talk, so many theories, so many conspiracies that Shakespeare couldn't have written those, all those plays, all that, all that work of genius because of his background, right? Because he was, he was uneducated. Mm. They could only have been written by uh, someone of higher class. There had to be a lord. Mm. Failing that, maybe about six lords, you know, whatever, whichever theory you particularly follow. But the notion that... Uh, um, a regular British person can be a genius if they're not part of the, the right set. Comes up again and again in this part of part of Watling Street, and, and it's such a shame because you see, you know, the, yeah, yeah, because things like creativity, intelligence, tenacity, right? These things are, are spread uh, across the population, across the population of young people. These things sort of pop up. They're not all focused in the children um, of people who work in the city. You know, the notion that we educate people based on their parents' income rather than them mm. is a real loss to this country. We're losing people, you know, like, like Alan Moore, like Tommy, Tommy Flowers to, to, to a great degree, or we're not sort of uh, embracing them to the extent that we could. And I think everyone in the country now can imagine, you know, a black prime minister, can imagine a woman prime minister very easily, can, you can imagine a gay prime minister. It's, but who can imagine a poor prime minister, you know? This is the area that I was born into um, and I was, my, myself and my family were moved out of it in around 1970 when the progressive destruction of the boroughs had reached a kind of a tipping point. They had put up these two huge tower blocks that you see looming at the top of the street here. Back when they were put up, we were awestruck because it was like suddenly living in New York. We'd never seen a 12-storey building before. We thought they were amazing. We didn't actually realise that they were kind of two headstones that were being erected over our neighbourhood. This neighbourhood has become more fascinating to me the, the longer I've been away from it. The destruction of this neighbourhood first began, as far as I can work out, in around about 1918 when the soldiers were just coming back from war, my grandfather's amongst them. Um, and they came home to find that their neighbourhood was being pulled down. Uh, no apparent reason. Hmm. And that was the beginning of the demolishment of the boroughs. And I think probably because uh, in 1918, yes, we'd all been a bit distracted by the First World War, but there'd been 
equally or possibly more important things happening in Russia in 1917. So all of the Western powers were terrified at the idea of having a group, a community of working class people all in the same area. That suddenly didn't seem like such a good idea anymore because, well, what if it went the same way as Russia had gone? So I believe that from then they were starting to break up the working class in the boroughs and I suppose, in effect, the working class in general. It's uh, So this, this place, although, yes, it's also full of very happy childhood memories, uh, this is where I used to play, this is where a lot of my important relationships started, but sort of, it's also overlaid with the, the social reality of the boroughs and what it symbolises. was always, even when I was growing up here, it was the poorest area of the town. And before that, it had been the whole of the town. Well, as I know this area from fiction primarily, from Alan's novel, from Jerusalem, so it's very odd experience to enter a world that you associate with you know, the immaterial, to, uh, to walk past street signs that are loaded with meaning and, and importance, think, my God, is this, is this really Scarletwell Street? Um, to find, you know, well, it's the centre of the country. This, the, the, the notion that this is the, the centre of England, that the, the arches of the, the uh, English imagination would have been directly above us that all came sort of crashing down as the novel sort of uh, establishes it. Uh, but to see it as... It reminds me a lot of the place I grew up in, a place called Buckley in North Wales, which looked very, very much similar to this. Um, but no-one's enchanted Buckley in the way that Alan's enchanted this place. No-one's added the, the level of meaning to it um, that this place has. It's, it's a very weird experience to walk around an area you know from fiction. Uh, it's like it's materialised for you. It's like, it's like you're on a, a tour at the Harry Potter studios and you can go around Hogwarts or something like that. And, and where, does, where does this fit in within the broader story of Watling Street? Well, it's it's just within the the. I had this five mile uh, limit on when I did my journey along Watling Street. I was never to go more than five miles from Watling Street, and the boroughs was just within that. And I thought, oh, that's excellent, that's great, because because Alan, you live just outside that five miles thing, and I was troubled by this, you see. But yeah. because the boroughs is is just within. Alan, can I ask you about the importance of of place in your in your in your practice of creativity? I mean, if you if when you were say five, if your family had decided let's up and move to Ipswich. How different do you think the work you'd be producing now? Um, I don't know whether I would feel such a connection uh, with the place, given that three or four generations of my family, at least, have lived here on the various sides of the family. I'm sure that there's always been ancestors of mine probably around the boroughs mm. since its earliest times. People didn't tend to move very far back in the day, you know. Uh, so I don't know. If I'd been transplanted, it would have obviously been completely different circumstances. I mean, I owe my current situation to a lot of, uh, at the time, hideous accidents. Being excluded from school when I was 17, that was a massive influence upon my subsequent life. But also coming from the boroughs. Um, I think I've, I mean, look, I came from the school that was here, Spring Lane School, which was a lovely little red brick school, um, probably terribly underfunded 
uh, but you were made to feel kind of welcome. They were doing their best in a difficult neighbourhood. Mm -hmm. I was moved from there to the grammar school, uh, which, I mean, like the grammar school process, the 11 plus, it was explained by another Burroughs boy, um, Jeremy Seabrook, who wrote a brilliant book called uh, The Unprivileged, which was, um, I think, the first work on post-war poverty in England. Now, Jeremy Seabrook, he was born in Green Street, uh, the same place that my paternal grandmother used to live, the Deathmonger. Mm. Um, and he was very eloquent about what had happened to this neighbourhood, and he was talking about uh, the grammar school system, because, oddly, he ended up as my French teacher when I was 11. Um, but he was saying about how the 11-plus the system was meant to cream off the very best of the working class and give them a leg up into the middle class rather than so that they could escape from neighbourhoods like this rather than return to them and try to help them. Um, so if I hadn't lived here, uh, I probably wouldn't have shoulders that are almost entirely made of chip <laughs> um, and that would have perhaps taken a vital fuel from some of my work. Did I, ever, did I tell you my Brexit poem no. that I wrote? I wrote this verse the moment that I heard the good news that we'd got our language back whence I, in a misjudged racial attack, kicked out French, German and Italian words and then I Aliens who were lost in space Needing help from the human race And they find new energy at Alan, in, in, in creating Jerusalem, you, you have amassed an incredible amount of historical knowledge and love and compassion that goes into your book for place and for all the characters in it. Is there, a, is there an element of taking a place into, in, into somewhere ideal where no one else can get hold of it? Yes, and, and there certainly is. I mean, like, because that is one of the only things that effectively we can do. Um, I think that I, as a thought experiment was just thinking once, okay, so what would make you happy about uh, the way that the boroughs was treated? Um, if they suddenly said, look, Alan, we're ever so sorry for what we did to the boroughs, we want it to sort of be just how it was again, we're going to build it right down to the last doorstep, it's going to be rebuilt exactly as you remember it. Now, that would be horrible. Uh, that would be horrible because it would be false. It wouldn't actually be the place. Those places have gone. Um, however, I've saved them in the ship in the bottle sense. That I've saved all of those moments, all of those people, all of those streets by enclosing them within the the bottle of, of Jerusalem, of, of prose, of narrative, in a form that I mean, art is as eternal as we are. 
No, it probably won't last till the end of the universe, but it will probably last as long as we do. You know, and that is a kind of... That's a kind of longevity that... Uh, yes, that makes sense to me. That makes emotional sense. Whereas rebuilding the boroughs, no, that wouldn't make emotional sense. What's your perspective of Dickens, then? Do you think Dickens, in his books, was writing stories of characters trying to escape their certain fates? Or do you think there was an element of a return and helping? Well, I think that... I mean, Dickens is a, he's an odd one. He's a tremendous writer. Uh, I think that by um, publicising these conditions... Uh, by dramatising the life of the lower classes. Um, yes, he was getting something out of it as well, but he was also drawing attention to conditions that uh, a lot of people had probably ignored or been prepared to ignore up until that point. Um, mind you, you could say much the same thing about Jack the Ripper, um, I believe that uh, George Bernard Shaw, um, at the height of the Ripper murders, said, this is ridiculous. All of us well-intentioned public kind of figures have been trying without any success at all for years to bring people's attentions to the plight of the poor. And now overnight, some anonymous genius has done our work for us. Um, but, yeah, I think that, yeah, Dickens deserves credit, amongst his many other accomplishments, for actually popularising the working class as... Because his working class characters weren't all depraved and his middle class characters weren't all benign. Um, it was... Uh, and that in itself was quite a revolutionary statement back in Dickens' day. I think that he had um, an eye and an ear for the realities of life on a lower class than his own, you know. Of course, on the other hand, he was a middle-class ponce. But, uh... <laughs> Well, I did promise to conclude with revealing Alan Moore's role in building Milton Keynes. So here's John Hicks, followed by a recording of Alan live at Brighton Spiegel Tent in 2017. Yeah, Alan Moore is one of the mythical builders of this, of this town. Alan Moore was working for uh, some uh, gas board contractors in one of the few proper jobs he had in his life before becoming a full-time uh, writer and uh, artist. And, um, you know, he was in the office organising everything here with people going out digging the trenches and uh, laying down the gas mines and stuff like that. So he didn't do it single-handedly, you know, as he says, he had some help. But, uh, yeah, he did build this city. What happened was I was working as a subcontractor to the gas board in around about... 1975, 1976, around then, when they were just actually building Milton Keynes. 
so I was working out there when it was just a load of slit trenches and uh, depressed navvies and rain and um, so, but I did have a part in the building of Milton Keynes. When I went there, when Josie Long, the comedian, was doing one of her kind of guerrilla performances uh, with Arts Emergency, where she'd sort of take a bus full of performers around the country. She'd alert the audience by Twitter, and then she'd perform the gig for nothing in a, a, a windy car park. Um, so I was there at Milton Keynes. There were about 15 people in the audience. So I came on and uh, I was explaining about how I'd recently been reading in New Scientist. Somebody had put forward the theory that in the next 20 years, we are very definitely going to create a quantum supercomputer. Now, a quantum supercomputer can handle so many bits of information that it can handle more bits of information than there are particles in the known universe, right? So that means that, um, well, basically, we will be able to simulate a universe, uh, including simulated life forms that do not know that they are simulated. If we're going to be able to do that in the next 20 years, the odds against that being the first time that this has happened are vanishingly small. So the greater probability is that we are in a simulation, in a simulation, in a simulation, in a simulation, and so on for several hours. So what do we do about that? Because the person who is operating this simulation, who is playing this game in the next universe up, is effectively God to us. The best practical thing to do, firstly, don't be boring, because uh, boring characters are always weeded out of the game really, really, really early on. Um, so, you know, yeah, be evil if you want, but just don't be boring, you know? And then he said also, God, or the, the person playing this simulation, uh, if he has, or, or she, has a similar ego structure to us simulations, then they will probably be playing this game. Um, it said that they wouldn't go for anything obvious, like, say, President of the United States, only for obvious reasons, you know. <laughs> They'd probably go for somebody who was really admired, uh, but wasn't such a high-grade celebrity. <laughs> now, as I said to this freezing and bewildered 15 people in this kind of small windy enclosure in Milton Keynes. I said, I don't think that that is enough of a criteria to decide whether the person that you're talking to is God or not, because a lot of celebrities are horrible. I said that what you should really look for is uh, a celebrity who kind of both looks <laughs> and perhaps sounds like your personal idea of God. <laughs> but I said, I said, even that is not enough. People of Milton Keynes, I said that this is not enough because that could mean that you end up worshipping any tramp, basically. I mean, you know, it's... So I said, what you should ask yourself, people of Milton Keynes, is does the person that you're looking at 
appear to have physically created the world around you. And I said, in your case, people of Milton Keynes, yes, I did. <laughs> so that is why I'm still regarded as a deity by the primitive and superstitious people of Milton Keynes. podcast was presented by David Bramwell and John Higgs and was produced by David Bramwell. The book Watling Street is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and is available from all good bookshops, especially those within a five mile radius of the A2 and the A5. Music and the title track Watling Street was by Oddfellows Casino and features on their latest album O Sealand, which is well worth spending your pocket money on. To find out more about John and David, visit drbramwell.com and johnhiggs.com. Further podcast featuring the dynamic duo can be found on Auditorium Podcast at oddpodcast.com. This podcast was funded by Arts Council England. If you liked it, please leave a review for us on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>